morning. I want to echo my thanks to God for our pastor, Larry. My, with my age and the work that Heather and I have done over the course of our lives, we've seen it, we've visited lots of churches and seen lots of pastors. And I am so, so thankful that God has Pastor Larry here. Now, if you don't know, my name is Rob Blanks, and uh, our family is fairly new to Gunnison. We've been here a little over a year now, and, uh, and uh, I'm actually working here, and I get to work with pastors in Uganda and training them, and I do that remotely because it's a remote program. Now, this past week, I got back, Heather and I had a trip to Uganda, and so we got back less than a week ago, uh, late Tuesday night last week, and uh, had an amazing trip. And one of the blessings that we always encounter when we travel to Uganda is the faith, the joy, the excitement of our Christian brothers and sisters over there. And three adjectives that really stand out to me, their faith, their courage, and their resilience. And those are things that I think Christians in the United States, and I know that I need, and so I think they have a message. We have something to learn from them. One thing, thinking about resilience, their lives, because of living in a developing world, you face many challenges that we don't face day in, day out here. And uh, one of our students, Pastor Dixon, and Hayden, if you can advance that slide, and we'll go one more for further. This is Pastor Dixon. He's an Anglican priest, and this is his wife, Linda. A week ago, last Friday, Heather and I were facilitating a marriage conference, and I got word yesterday that Linda passed away. She, she was killed in a motor accident. If you want to back up one slide, Hayden, this is a picture of our marriage conference. This is Pastor Stephen on the right, Pastor Dixon on the left, and then Linda, uh, the second to the left. Five children, they're a young couple, five biological children and a, and a handful of foster children, I don't know how many, and she was taken home. And so you hear their stories of family and what they go through, and it's really something. And I'm thinking, oh my word, I'm worried about what I'm doing over here. Uh, thank you, Hayden, for those slides. Another one, we had another one of our students, he's from northern Uganda, and uh, just as in the United States right now, we're wrestling with ethnic tension in our country. And it's a real thing. Maybe we don't feel it as much in Gunnison, but it's a real thing in our country. And sometimes I get to travel out to, to Philadelphia and D.C. And, and Pennsylvania, and boy, it's, you feel it a lot more out there. And this pastor in northern Uganda, he was working with this one tribe, and it's a, a quite a remote tribe. And this tribe, they came and they said, we're going to plant a church but this church is only going to be for our tribe. Only for our tribe. And so Pastor Robert, he said, no, hold on a minute. We can't do that. That's not how the church of Jesus Christ works. It's open to everybody. It's not exclusive to one ethnicity or one tribe in this case. And so he took that stand. And then later on, he got one or two phone calls. The phone calls said, guess what? We don't like what you're doing. You're not one of our tribe, we're going to kill you. And these people are pretty serious when they say stuff like that. So he wasn't sure what was going on. He showed up at the church building, and uh, these guys wear these long robes, 
and he sees at the gate of the courtyard entering into the church building these two men standing from this tribe, and he can see a gun right there, probably an AK-47 hanging down. And he thought, okay, what do I do? This is it. This is it. I'm going to get shot. He put one foot in front of the other, made his way just like he always does. He walked right past those guys. And they were out there, and then it happened again. He walked right past them again. And uh, later on, they were talking to talking to these guys, and these guys said, we never even saw you. We never even saw you. We were there to kill you, and we never even saw you. God somehow had blinded them from seeing him. And one of the guys, I don't know if it was one of the two right at the gate or not, but later he came and he knelt down before Pastor Robert and he said, I came with a gun to kill you. Please forgive me. I was wrong. He knelt down and asked for forgiveness. And now this guy is going to church up in this area. And so some of the stories that they, that they share with us are unbelievably encouraging. And so I wanted to just pass a couple on to you. So we're going to turn in our Bibles. Get, please take your Bibles out to Mark chapter 9. We're going to carry on starting in verse 30. Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 30. I'm going to be reading from the ESV. We're going to go from verse 30 down through verse 41. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he, that is Jesus, did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and when he, and, and when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they, the disciples they're talking about, kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put, it, and put him in the midst of them and was taking him and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly, I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Let's pray. Dear fathers, we come to this text this morning as we come to your word. We want to confess again together corporately as a church that you, oh Jesus, Lord Jesus, are King of kings and Lord of lords. And that this is your word that you've given to us. Lord, in this room, 
we're all carrying different things, Father. We're in different seasons of life. We come in here carrying different challenges and aches, heartaches, heartbreaks, joys, celebrations. And Lord, whatever we are carrying, whether it's only known to you, we ask that you would meet us here through your word, Father. For those that are beaten down and discouraged, may they be encouraged in you, Father. Those that need your word to break into their lives, perhaps an exhortation from your word, Father, we pray that your word through your spirit would do that. Lord, if there's anybody in here that does not know, that has not called upon the name of Christ personally and personally trusted in him, we pray that that person would do so, Lord. Please pour out your grace in, the, in and among us as we seek to understand and apply your word today. In your holy name we pray, amen. So let's jump in. Let's jump into the text and work our, start working our way through it. And so verse 30 they went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he, Jesus, didn't want anyone to know. He didn't want anyone to know. Now, it's interesting. That's a, that's a common refrain you hear a lot through the Gospels. The demons will cry out, cry out, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus will say, silence. Christ, in chapter 8, warned the disciples, don't tell anybody after that confession that you're the Christ, the Messiah. And then now here again we see he did not want anyone to know. What's going on there? It could be this what's, what's going on there is what we refer to as the Messianic secret where in that New Testament era, many of those Jews were anticipating a Messiah that would be a political leader. Because we remember that in the first century, the Israelites were under the rule of the Romans. Now the Romans let the, the Jews, the Israelites carry on you can do your stuff. You can follow your laws. By and large, you can't capitally punish anybody, but you can do all your other stuff. But all the while, the Romans were above them. And so they were, many of them were anticipating a political, as Pastor Larry shared, shared before, a political deliverer. So that could have been one reason why Christ was saying, no, now's not the time. And we don't want to stir up false pretenses with people. Were they expecting a suffering servant? Were they expecting the Messiah to come and suffer and die? No, they would be more interested probably in a political deliverer. If that was the case, then they had created a concept of the Messiah that was very real in their minds yet did not line up with the true Messiah on his first coming. Now, Christ is going to return, and when he returns, he's going to vanquish and rule. Amen, hallelujah, he's coming back. But his first time that he came, coming as a suffering servant, to die for our sins. And so I think that begs a question for us. Sometimes, oftentimes, all of us are tempted to create God in our own image. Somebody once said that uh, God created us in his image and we returned the favor and created him in our image. 
Do we have a conception, a moral conception of who God ought to be? God ought to be like this. And in my life I'm suffering and I I shouldn't be suffering. God ought to help me because God is this or that. But is that a conception that's just in in my mind? Or is that the God of the Bible? And that's one of the reasons that we have, we have to sit under the preaching of the Word. And I'm so thankful for a pastor that preaches the Word. We need the Word to speak into our lives and destroy our false conceptions and replace our false conceptions with the biblical true portrait of the true and the living God. He was teaching the disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. Now here's that famous title, the Son of Man, coming from the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, a glorious title. And it's one that Christ used to describe himself. And, uh, and it was also one that, to some degree, perhaps concealed who he was until the right time. But there's a bit of a wordplay there. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. Bit of a wordplay there. And then here it is. They will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. Here's the gospel. Here's the gospel right here. Christ said about the exact same thing in chapter 8 after Peter's confession. In chapter 8, we read that the Son of Man must suffer many things. Here we have the Son of Man is going to. Christ, suffering, his death, his resurrection was not a surprise. It was not an accident. It wasn't a nice plan of God's that went awry. No. This was according to the predetermined and wonderful, wise counsel of the will of God before eternity passed. That the Messiah would come and that he would die and raise again. It's not one of multiple ways to heaven. So popular. Oh, yeah. Different faiths, you know, you have your way, we have your this way, these guys have this way. We're all on the same road going to the same God. There is not multiple roads. This is it. The death of the Son of God. He will, he, they will kill him and after three days he will arise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. So again, we see that the disciples, they're, lear- they're learning certain things, but yet they don't, get the whole, they don't have the full picture yet. They didn't understand what he was saying. And so we see when we study the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, God reveals himself progressively. If we were to jump all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when God is cursing uh, Satan, the serpent, he says, I will put enmity or hate between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, he, singular, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so right at the beginning when sin sin entered the human race, already the promise of the Messiah has been given. But in Genesis 3.15, we don't know his name. We don't know when he's going to come. We don't know any details. We just know that he's going to come from the seed of the woman. He's going to be a son of Eve. 
and that he will crush the head of the evil one. And the evil one will bruise his heel. And as we work from Genesis through our Bible, we get more and more progressive revelation. And the disciples aren't quite there yet. But thanks be to God, we get to sit here. 2022, in the year of our Lord, we have an entire canon, the canon of Scripture, 66 books. It's been closed. We're no longer adding more books to the New Testament. It's been closed. We get to read it. We get to read the end of the story. It's one of the reasons we want to study the Bible from start to finish so that you have the big picture. It's one of the, one of the reasons we want to study theology or systematic or biblical theology so that we have the whole picture. We don't want to be real good in one area and be real good here and then have a big hole right here. If somebody has a big hole in their theology, then that opens the door for all kinds of things to come in. And so thinking about the disciples, they're with Christ. They got to talk to him and hear what he said, see him interact, and yet they didn't understand all of it at that point. So I think a question for us to ask ourselves is, where are we in our progressive understanding of the Messiah? Maybe you're here and you say, you know what, I've heard a lot of talk about Jesus, but I really don't know. If that's the case, come talk to one of the leaders of the church. Could be that you're here and boy, your mind is overloaded and you've been studying theology like crazy, and, but your heart is way in a different spot. How is your heart? I mean, your mind and your heart and your life, are they in balance? Are they in balance? Continuing verse 33. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, this is he's talking to his disciples, what were, you, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. This, doesn't, this sounds like a group of boys, doesn't it? A group of boys on, the, on, the, on recess at school having an argument over who's, who's the greatest, who's the best, who's the smartest, who's the strongest. And that's what these disciples are doing as men. And Christ asked them, of course he knows, <laughs> what were you discussing on the way? And then they kept silent because they were probably ashamed. But they were arguing about who was the greatest. And that's the way of our world. That's the way of our inclinations of our heart. Compete, progress. Who's the greatest? Who's the prettiest? Who's the smartest? Who makes the more, most money? Who's the most educated? Who has the, the cleverest answer? Who's the funniest? In Christ, as he does so often, he takes the situation and he turns it completely upside down. Jesus sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, this bombshell, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Turning the mindset of the world, turning the mindsets of our evil hearts on its head. What in the world does this mean? Well, I think he answers it. As we study our Bibles, one of the interpretation principles we wanted to use is the best, interpre- the best interpretation of the Bible is the Bible itself. And I think Christ has already answered this. Now he's stating it to his disciples in a different way. In chapter 8, 
verse 34, Jesus says this, and calling a crowd to him with his disciples, Jesus said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? You want to follow Christ, you want to be one of the Messiahs, then you lose your life. You go last. You're not at the top of the pecking order. You humble yourself and put yourself at the bottom. You lose your life. You crucify yourself. You take up your cross. If you want to find your life, you lose it. The Apostle Paul, I think, also answered this question for us. In Philippians chapter 3, verse, I'll start reading at 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So this coming in last of all, servant of all, losing your life, it's not so that you can just annihilate your life and that's it. No. So that you might find your life, is the Apostle Paul here, so that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God depends on faith. Here it is again, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Christ is preparing his disciples. How are, how, are, how, are, how are the disciples to follow Christ as disciples? How are we to follow Christ as disciples if I claim Christ? This is one of the ways we do it. Humble yourself with love and with faith and become last of all, servant of all. Jim Elliot's famous uh, missionary, Jim Elliot's famous quote, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And so Christ continues, and he, he continues, and he uses a, an illustration here. And so remember in verse 35, and he sat down, and he tells the disciples this, and then here in verse 36, and he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. This is fascinating to me as I was thinking about it. And Jesus took a child and, and put the child in the midst of the disciples. Now right here, and taking the child in his arms. Now Jesus could have just sat there and called a child, patted his head, Boy or girl, okay, that's nice. Look at this child. He could have made the point. He didn't. He called the child. He's sitting and he takes the child up in his arms. Now, I was thinking about that. How often do you see a man take a child in his arms that is not his son or daughter or grandchild? I was thinking about that. Not quite that, that cut me a bit. The tenderness of Christ as a man to take a child into his arms. 
not to keep him over here and pat his head, but to take him in his arms. It's one thing for a man to take his uh, son or daughter or grandson in his arms. We, that's, that's natural. That doesn't mean anything, though. That's what a man or mother should do. They're your children. They're your future. They're your heirs. But the, the, the son or a daughter of another man or woman, it's different. The other thing that's interesting is that they're in the house, and there's children there, apparently. This presupposes that there are children there. How do we interact with our children? Do we let them come in and out and around, or do we banish them? When Heather and I were missionaries in Mozambique, we would have field conferences where we would meet with different missionary families, and our supervisors, they would come in, and, and, and our supervisor told us, he said, look, guys, when we're all together, all the families together, and we're praying, if, the, if a child comes in, you welcome them. As we, right in the middle, we're praying. We don't stop. We just keep going. But you take that child, and you welcome him, and they can come and sit, and they can pray with us. And then if they get antsy and they want to run off, then let them run off. But they're welcome here. It was interesting when he said that. It just set the tone for how we would try to interact with children in that meeting. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. What, is it, what does it mean to receive a child in Christ's name? This is explicitly Christian, unapologetically centered on Christ. Not in the name of love, not in the name of peace, not in the name of family, in the name of Christ. Expressly, unapologetically Christocentric. We tell our children about Christ. I heard about a parenting philosophy that said, we don't want to bias our children, so we're going to raise our children. We're not going to tell them anything about Christ. They have to find their own way. That's not what's happening here. It's a horrible, horrible idea. Because to tell our children nothing is to tell them something very loudly. Compassion International is a ministry that we work with, and um, it's a wonderful one. They're based in Colorado, Colorado Springs. And in Uganda, we've gotten to interact with a lot of the staff. We've gone to Compassion Project and, and met the kids and interacted with them. And we have a number of, a number of friends of ours. Are compa- now they're old and they're ministers, but they were Compassion-sponsored children. And a couple of years ago, I was on a trip to Uganda, and I ha- we happened to be there with Wes Stafford, the former president of Compassion. And uh, their tagline is uh, Compassion, releasing children from poverty in Jesus' name. Releasing children from poverty in Jesus' name. And Wes Stafford told me, he said, when he left Compassion, he said, do you know how much money we take from the government? He said, not one penny, because we are unapologetically Christ-centered. We work with churches, and we are centered on Christ. And we we don't want anybody to tell us any different. And at that time, I think their annual budget was something like over $800 million. It's a lot of money. In Uganda, we have these classes. In one of our classes, we have 12 academic classes for these pastors. One of them is HCD, Holistic Child Development. Now, some people, one of my friends said, you only have 12 classes to teach pastors? And one of them's about children? For crying out loud, why not add another theology class? 
in Uganda, demographically, it's one of the youngest countries of the world. They say around 50% of the country is 15 years old and younger. Around 70% of the country is 25 years old and younger. You go to church over there, sometimes it's like going to a youth group. As we think about uh, children, the, we have some warnings from the Old Testament that are important for us to remember. Not that we want to be throwing too many stones, but uh, we want to be wise. I know maybe some of you will know King Hezekiah, famous king of Judah. And uh, he was a good king. He loved God. But right at the end of his life, he did something really stupid. He invited the, these uh, emissaries from Babylon into his kingdom, and he showed them all his treasuries. And it was a foolish decision. He shouldn't have done it, and God punished him for it. And so this is, then Isaiah the prophet said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to, ba to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord, and some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought, listen, listen to what he thinks here. This is just unbelievable. For Hezekiah thought, why not if there be peace and security in my days? Not a problem if they carry off my sons, even if they make them eunuchs. At least there'll be peace in my days. What a sad comment. What a sad comment. And then we look at the, the history there. Hezekiah's son was Manasseh, probably the worst king in the, in the line of, of Judah. Manasseh even, even sacrificed one of his children to, in the fire to a pagan god. That was one of Hezekiah's grandsons was sacrificed in the fire. So we have Hezekiah, who was a good king, ended kind of rough. Then we have Manasseh. What a, what, a, what a jump from that generation. An absolutely horrible king. Ammon, who was also a bad king. And then Ammon's son was Josiah, who were, along with David were by far the two best kings. And then Josiah's king, or Josiah's son, didn't follow the Lord. Five generations, and it's bouncing around. I want to thank uh, the, the, the children's ministers and people that work with children and babies. Amen. This is important. This is important stuff. It's important to God. Christ says, anybody who receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Children important to Christ, children important to the Father. And so questions for us to think about. God has given you children. How are you doing with your children? Who are the least of these children that are in our county? Where are they? Are we, are we thinking about them? Are, are, are they off our radar? Do we take our children seriously? Do we take their questions seriously? Do we take their discipleship seriously? I had, uh, when I was in college in Golden, I was doing, working with a youth group at a church in Denver. And I would drive from Golden to Denver, and my neighbor, he was a young boy, I was taking him to youth group too. And I think this kid might have been in seventh grade. And uh, we're driving home one time, and we had time to talk on the highway, and he started asking me, seventh grade, about the problem of evil. And we were talking about Adam and Eve in the garden, and he says to me, but where did the thought in Eve's mind come from? 
to want to do that. It's a seventh grader I think he was, a young kid. And we're talking about it, and his response was to me, I've always wondered about that. Do we take our children's questions, their discipleship seriously? We certainly ought to. We certainly ought to. And this text reminds us of that. Does it burn with us to want to pass on the riches and the glory of Christ to our next generation? Or are we content to follow in Hezekiah's footsteps on that one point? The last section of, passage, section of verses here. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Now, when I was studying this, uh, somebody had labeled these section of verses the strange exorcist. I thought that was an interesting <laughs> title for these verses, the strange exorcist. Uh, one of our pastors, he was actually one of the guys up in the, the picture there, Pastor Stephen. Um, about three weeks ago, he was submitting an assignment to me and he, it was a journal entry. He said, Professor, I'm, I'm running late and uh, I'm going to be a day late on my assignment. Is it okay because there was somebody in my church that needed attention. It was this man, his wife, she was struggling with demonic oppression. And so I had to respond to her. And, uh, and it took her a while to get her free. Is it okay if I submit my assignment one day late? I thought, wow. As a teacher, I've heard a lot of different excuses. I've never heard exorcism as an excuse. But here we have something going on. John says to Christ, you know, something's going on over here. I saw somebody doing these things in your name. And Jesus says, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able to soon afterwards, will be able to soon afterwards to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. I think what's happening here is that the disciples, they're getting distracted from what they're supposed to be focusing on. They're looking What's happening and what's somebody else doing over here in the name of Christ? If they're not doing it, I'm going to criticize it if they're not part of our group. And I think that's what was happening. Christ, focus on what's going on here. Don't worry about this other group. If they're not against us, they're for us. And so I think that question comes back to us just like with the disciples. Am I overly preoccupied looking over here, looking over there, but what about these guys? What about these guys criticizing them? Well, we, want to be, we want to be thinkers, assessing what's going on around us, yes, but are we losing our focus because we're being distracted? Or are we focusing on what has Christ given us to do? What am I to do right now? In my season of life, with my gifts, with my talents, my time, my money, whatever it might be. And then he says in verse 41, For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. I think this brings us back around to this idea of servant of all. Servant of all that we saw back up in verse 35. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. How do you be servant of all? Christ takes up in his arms a vulnerable child. There's nothing to be gained from it. How do you be servant of all? 
Now we're talking about giving somebody a cup of water, a very small deed. Are any small deeds beneath us? If you're servant of all, then there should be no deed beneath you. So let's, let's jump back up to verse 31. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that's almost exactly what we see, the gospel. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 5. This is the Apostle Paul speaking here. Now let me just say an aside. There's a current stream of thoughts that's very popular that's attacking biblical Christianity and they're saying that what Christ taught, that's good. But what Paul taught is different than what Christ taught. And what Paul said, ah, we, we, we want to dismiss Paul, but we want to accept Christ. This book is one book. God does not contradict himself. It's one message, one theme. And so, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15, verse 3, For I delivered to you as, as of first importance... What I also received, here it is, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He was buried and was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas and to the Twelve, the Gospel. Almost exactly what Christ says here in chapter 9. It's almost exactly what Christ says in chapter 8. So when we think about maybe an errant conception of God, when we think about progressively understanding, do I understand the fullness of God's redemption? As I think about being, in order to be first, I need to be last of all, servant of all. As we think about taking children and loving them and being vulnerable children, receiving them in Christ's name, as we think about keeping on focus, giving cups of water, as we think about these things, it's all through Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He came. He was on a mission. Right here in Mark 9, the disciples didn't understand it fully. Christ was on a mission, and nobody was going to prevent it. And this is the good news, that God has come to save us. God came looking for us, not us having to go looking for Him with our works that are nothing but filthy rags, groping and feeling as blind men and women to try to get to God. No, no, no. The good news of the gospel, God has come to us. He was on a mission. Christ came, the incarnate Son of God. He was killed. He was raised. He is returning. He died for our sins. That's it. It all, hang, it all hinges right there. And that's the best news in the world that we can come into this building together, every one of us, and we can put all of our efforts, all of our strivings, and just lay them down at the foot of the cross because He's paid it all. To Him be the glory. Let's pray. Dear Father, thank You for Your mercy. Lord, thank You for Your Word. Lord, we ask for Your, your application of it in our lives. May we be reminded through your spirit. May we be convicted. May we have eyes to see. May we have courage to apply what you are saying 
may we not leave, Lord, without tasting and partaking of this wonderful good news. The best news in the, the entire universe and beyond. Oh, Lord, thank you, thank you, thank you. In Jesus Christ's wonderful name we pray, amen.